0: Our Old Testament reading is taken from Isaiah 42. Isaiah 42, will be reading verses 1 through 9, and just as we sung, we'll be reading about God's servant, Jesus Christ. Hear the word of God. Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare, before they spring forth, I tell you of them. And then turning to the New Testament, Matthew chapter 9, we'll read verses 27 through 35. Again, hear the word of God. And as Jesus passed on from there, two blind men followed him, crying aloud, Have mercy on us, son of David. When he entered the house, the blind men came to him, and Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? They said to him, Yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes, saying, According to your faith, be it done to you. And their eyes were opened, and Jesus sternly warned them, See that no one knows about it. But they went away and spread his fame through all that district. As they were going away, behold, a demon-oppressed man who was mute was brought to him. And when the demon had been cast out, the mute man spoke, and the crowds marveled, saying, Never was anything like this seen in Israel. But the Pharisees said, He casts out demons by the prince of demons. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction.
1: Unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and uphold it from this time forth and forevermore. With justice and with righteousness, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. The King of kings and the Lord of lords will sit on the throne of his father David forever. Now the living God has made a covenant with David, and he has made extraordinary promises to David and to David's son. Who is that son? Now Solomon, in fact, would be a glorious king who would build the earthly temple there in Jerusalem. But Solomon would die, and his kingdom would soon be divided. It is quite clear that Solomon is not the fulfillment of the Lord's promises. Rather, the promises would be fulfilled in King David's greater son, who would be infinitely greater than Solomon in all of his glory. The Lord's covenant with David would find its ultimate fulfillment in the long-hoped-for Messiah that Israel longed for particularly deeply as they sat under the oppression of one Gentile power after another. As Isaiah so beautifully puts it, of the increase of his government and of peace, there shall be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. Yet by the time that the true son, the ultimate son of David, came into this world, the Jewish people had developed significant misunderstandings of what the mission of the son of David would be like. The popular view was that the Messiah would act with great violence to bring about a political deliverance. The wicked would be crushed, while the righteous would be rewarded. Uh, We find a clear misunderstanding of this in what has come to be known as the Psalms of Solomon. Now, don't confuse this with the Psalms in the Bible. The Psalms of Solomon were written in the 2nd and the 1st century BC. Just like we have non-inspired hymns in our hymnal, the Jewish people also worship with uninspired songs and psalms. And in Psalm of Solomon 17, there's a very vivid description. And this was a psalm that was immensely popular at the time of Christ. There's a vivid description of the coming Messiah, who, by the way, is not God in this psalm, but the coming Messiah who will bring about, through great violence, the deliverance of his people. He will crush the Romans who were in Jerusalem... He will crush the religious leaders who are in Jerusalem, the Jewish religious leaders, and the righteous people will therefore be able to live in peace. The psalm says things like this, the sinners will be smashed. But critically, the sinners who will be smashed are other people. See, the people singing this hymn thought that their problems were all external to them. They weren't seeing the problem as being something that they partook in. And so when the Messiah came, he would deliver the good rather than delivering bad people from their sins. He would deliver the good through political violence, crushing the people in Jerusalem that were um, in charge of the temple, the religious leaders, and critically, of course, overthrowing the Romans and completely wiping them out of the promised land. In this morning's passage, we see that Christ's self-understanding of his first coming was on a collision course with what so many of his countrymen were expecting the Messiah to be like. Yes, Jesus does deliver us from external enemies. Yet at the most fundamental level, Jesus comes to deliver us from our own sins. To make this point clear, God has placed our Lord's mission... In his name. He has the angel instruct Joseph, You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. We do not simply need power from the Messiah. What we need is mercy. We're going to look at this morning's passage under five main headings. First, the Messiah practices what he preaches. Second, Why faith? Third, the messianic secret. And fourth, the truth about Jesus brings division. And fifth, no matter how we respond, Jesus keeps being Jesus. Well, that's a lot. So let me give that to you again and perhaps a bit more slowly. First, the Messiah practices what he preaches... Second, why faith? Third, the messianic secret. Fourth, the truth about Jesus brings division. And fifth, no matter how we respond, Jesus keeps on being Jesus. We begin with the truth that Jesus practices what he preaches. Please look at verse 27 with me. Verse 27. And as Jesus passed on from there, two blind men followed him, crying aloud, Have mercy on us, son of David. Let's go ahead and set the scene. Um, it begins with, as Jesus passed on from there, and so we ask, from where? And we remind ourselves that Jesus is leaving the house of Jairus. Uh, the, the man is the ruler of the local synagogue, where he's just done the astonishing miracle of raising Jairus' daughter from the dead. It's the type of thing that you can just imagine how the crowds would respond, how the astonishment at Jesus' power would simply spread. And in fact, we don't need to imagine, because in verse 26, uh, we're told that, um, that the news of this went out throughout the region. Now, if we step back, we can see that chapters 8 and chapter 9 of Matthew are actually a blaze of miracles. If you count them up, you probably don't. You don't need to. But there are 10 really significant miracles clustered together in these two chapters before Matthew is going to go on to talk about Jesus sending out his disciples on their very first missionary journey. I want you to think about these miracles as they come together because they're sort of overwhelming. Um, Jesus had healed a leper. He had cast out demons. He had healed the sick, both with a touch and at a distance. He has calmed the sea with simply the cry of his own command, caused a paralytic to walk, healed a hemorrhaging woman, restoring her to the community. Remember, as she was hemorrhaging with blood, she couldn't hang out in the local synagogue. She was unclean. Jesus heals this hemorrhaging woman, restoring her to the community, and most astonishingly, He has raised Jairus' daughter from the dead. This morning's passage brings us to the end of the miracles in this cycle. And it serves as a capstone of those miracles, a summary of those miracles, and it points us forward to what comes next, Jesus sending out his disciples on their very first missionary journey. So Jesus has left the house of the synagogue ruler, having raised Jairus' daughter from the dead, and another truly surprising thing happens. Two blind men start crying out, Have mercy on us, son of David. Now, that might not jar you very much because those are things that you take for granted being Christians. But there are, in fact, two very surprising things about this encounter. First, the blind men call out to Jesus for mercy. And what does Jesus do? He keeps on walking. He doesn't stop. He doesn't turn and address them. He keeps on walking until he gets into the house. Now, we are so used to Jesus showing mercy to anyone who cries out to him. uh, In our minds, we could read right over that and think as soon as they cry out to him, Jesus stops and talks to them. But that is not what he does. We'll talk about that a little bit later in the sermon because that helps us understand what's going on in this passage. But the second surprising reality is that this is the very first time in Matthew's account of the gospel that Jesus is ever addressed by anyone as the son of David. Now, you'll remember at the very beginning of the gospel of Matthew, when Matthew himself is giving the introduction, he does identify that Jesus is the son of David. In fact, that's at the very heart of the genealogy. But no person is called on Jesus as the son of David until these two blind men do so right here. Intriguingly, the very next person who will call Jesus the son of David will be a Canaanite woman, right? Not another Jew. And of course, the crowds will be shouting Hosanna to the son of David during the last week of our Lord's earthly life. But please remember this. As the crowds cry out to Jesus, addressing him as son of David, the high priests and the scribes, we could assume the Pharisees as well, but we're explicitly told the high priests and the scribes, become utterly indignant that they would say that about Jesus. That'll help us understand why, how Jesus is handling this phrase, son of David, and it's one that he does not normally put on his own lips. Why are the scribes and chief priests so utterly indignant? Remember that in popular thought, the coming son of David was going to overthrow the religious leaders, and he was going to do so with great violence. You know, sometimes we rightly say, if Jesus is in charge, Caesar isn't. Of course, more important to apply is, if Jesus is in charge, I'm not in charge. But you know, these religious leaders didn't like that, and they particularly didn't like the association with the idea that the son of David was going to judge and crush them. So far, the crowds who have been following Jesus have been following him as a great teacher or rabbi and because he is a remarkable healer. Uh, One of the ironies, and you'll note that God, and Jesus, of course, being God, seems to love a bit of irony. The very first people to perceive the truth, to see the truth about Jesus, that he's the son of David, are two blind men. But in the providence of God, the Lord has opened up their understanding It is two blind men who first perceive that Jesus is the promised son of the Davidic covenant. As Jeffrey Gibbs puts it, neither the crowds, nor the religious leaders, nor even Jesus' own disciples have seen or known Jesus well enough to name him as the blind men now confess him. And what makes this confession of these two blind men so remarkable is that in calling upon Jesus as the son of David, they combine this title with everything they've heard about the mercy that Jesus is showing to other people. right? The common understanding is that the son of David's going to be this political deliverer, but they've heard about Jesus as the great healer. They know he's the Messiah. They bring those two things rightly together. The son of David comes the first time with mercy for his people. They do not simply cry out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They cry out, Son of David, have mercy upon us. I I think this cry has a special poignancy to our own day. Uh, Please don't think this is just an interesting thing about them. I think it's very helpful for us as we think through our own ideas about who Jesus is and what he has come to do. Many Americans... I say that emphatically. It's not a few. This isn't a rare thing that happens over there in the corner. Many Americans who call themselves Christians seem to want a Messiah who will deliver them from their circumstances without him also being their Lord. That is, they want a Messiah who will make their life better, but not a Messiah they have to obey. Beloved, I hope you realize by now that unless they repent on that final day, the Lord will say to them, Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. I never knew you. But you know there's another problem in more conservative circles where people tend not to say that, and that is that there seems to be a large number of Christians in the United States, I use Christians a bit in quotes here, people who identify as Christians in the United States, who seem more concerned that the Messiah would deliver them from Joe Biden And from Donald Trump, than they are that the Lord would deliver them from their own sins. That is, just like these people, they're identifying the problem as being out there rather than in here. Now, in the Lord's gracious providence, He has sovereignly opened the hearts and minds of these blind men to see the truth. They were in need of Christ's mercy, they were in need of Christ's power and the son of David possessed both of them to the ultimate degree. Intriguingly, that's where I get the title for this section from, back in verse 13 of this chapter, Jesus had told the Pharisees, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Now we see that Jesus embodied the very thing that he had declared was God's will for our lives. See, Jesus doesn't simply say, you go do this. Put simply, Jesus is practicing what he preaches. He's telling us to be merciful so that we will be like him because he came embodying mercy to the ultimate degree for all of his people. Yet before healing the two men, Jesus presses upon them an important question. Please look at verses 28 and 29 with me. Verses 28 and 29. When Jesus entered the house, the blind men came to him, and Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? They said to him, Yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes, saying, According to your faith, be it done to you. Now if you think about this cycle of miracles as a whole, and you go back to the very first one when Jesus heals the leper, you'll recall that that was also an instance where the leper exercised faith. Right? The, the leper said, if you are willing, you are able to heal me. Now, that, of course, is what faith is. Faith is not claiming the result. Faith is recognizing that Jesus has the power to do what you're asking him to do. And so the leper says, if you are willing, you were able to cleanse me. And now Jesus is pressing this very same issue of faith upon these men as he rounds out this cycle of miracles. Why is he doing that? Or to put the question a little bit differently, why faith? What's the big deal about faith? And I think the answer is that Jesus is about to send out his disciples on their very first missionary journey. Jesus, of course, does not need a person's faith in order to heal you. Uh, I I trust you all know that. I mean, just think back to the previous miracle. Uh, When Jesus raises uh, raises Jairus' daughter from the dead, Jairus' daughter is not believing in him. Jairus' daughter is dead. See, Jesus doesn't need Jairus' daughter to exercise faith in some sort of cooperative thing so that Jesus can actually act. Why then faith? Grant Osborne puts it like this. Faith is not essential to Jesus' power to heal, but it is critical to the spiritual experience of the one being healed. See, Jesus is about a lot more than fixing our physical ailments in this world. Um, Think of it this way. Because the last two chapters have been a blaze of miracles... Some of Christ's followers could wrongly have concluded that the goal of the Messiah's ministry was healing, right? Casting out the the demons, healing the sick, opening the eyes of the blind. And faith was simply one of the means Jesus used to that end. But, beloved, that's actually to put it backwards. See, the goal of faith is not physical healing. The goal of the miracles Jesus is doing is to point to who he is. That is, the miracles are designed to produce faith, not faith-produced miracles. And the reason for that is, is God is not simply interested in healing you a little bit on your way to hell. Or frankly, even if you're saved, on the way to you wasting your life. When God came to save you, he came with a perfect plan. And part of God's perfect plan of salvation is that it is personal. You are not saved abstractly by a formula. You are saved by Christ uniting with you personally. You are saved so that you will be in a relationship with Christ, that you will know him and in him come to know God more fully, that you will grow. Therefore, in order to do that, you have to trust in who he is, that he is for you, and that he has acted decisively on your behalf. Faith is not necessary for Jesus, but it is necessary us so the two blind men affirm their faith that Jesus is able to heal them verse 30 and their eyes were opened and Jesus sternly warned them see that no one knows about it but they went away and spread his fame throughout all that district just like that two blind men they can see their eyes had been dramatically and instantly healed. And the rest of their lives would never be the same. Yet there's far more for these men than receiving physical sight. These, These men have been walking around blind, unable to see anything, and the very first thing they see is the Messiah who has healed them. The Messiah that they've confessed in faith. Much more than their physical healing... Through Jesus Christ, they now have a relationship, a saving relationship, with the living God. And more importantly than them seeing the Messiah, the Messiah has seen them, and he has put his blessing upon them. So here's my question for you. What would you do next if you were in their shoes? How would you respond if Jesus opened your eyes and also opened you spiritually to know him? That leads to an obvious problem in the passage because all of us would want to run around and tell everybody we know and, frankly, a lot of people we've never met before about what Jesus has done for us. I was blind, but now I see. And yet the passage tells us that Jesus sternly warned them, see that no one knows about it. Now what do you do? Uh, If you had an opportunity to meditate on this passage this week, uh, I wonder if you were puzzled over that, right? Because you're gonna hear that they actually do go spread his fame all throughout the region. Were you a bit puzzled about what's going on? I mean, uh, how in the world could they keep this secret? Well, a substantial majority of the commentators that I've consulted, they actually say, look, you know, they couldn't help it. Jesus told them to do A, but they went and did B. That is, Jesus said, Don't tell anyone I healed you. That, that's how it's being interpreted. But they went and did it anyway. And then the responses are, uh, of the commentators, range from, that just goes to show you how imperfect their faith is, they didn't obey Jesus, to, you know, how could they possibly help it? But I want to suggest a different um, way of understanding this passage to you this morning. I want to say that's possible. right? The majority of commentators, the consensus is possible. We simply don't have enough details here to nail this down for sure. But there is another way of understanding this passage Jesus, after all, uh, to put it mildly, was not an idiot. He would have known that everyone these men came in contact with would have gone, how did you get your sight back? And in fact, the crowd that had fallen to the house, they certainly would have known that Jesus had opened their eyes. Uh, Furthermore, when Jesus does most of his miracles, he actually does most of them publicly. He does them in synagogues. He does them with big crowds around. He sometimes does them with massive crowds around. Jesus was not trying to keep the fact that he was healing the sick, casting out demons, and opening the eyes of the blind a secret. So what might Jesus have been doing? I want to suggest it wasn't the healing that Jesus wanted to keep quiet. It was their proclamation that he was the son of David. See, remember that that proclamation is the thing that will actually make everyone indignant about him and ultimately lead to his death. So I think there's two reasons why Jesus wants to keep that particular proclamation secret. And that's because, first of all, he knows there's a massive misunderstanding about what he as the son of David has come to do at his first coming. Um, those, those things I, I quoted from the um, Psalm of Solomon number 17 earlier, you'll recognize that a lot of those things actually do fit with Christ's second coming. But Jesus wants people to have a right understanding of his first coming, what his mission was. And therefore, he doesn't want people to start with this misunderstanding and then squeeze his ministry into that misunderstanding. He wants to set that title aside so he can fill out the meaning so that when people come to see that he's the son of David, they will say, oh, yes, the son of David who came and gave his life for us because he loved us with an unspeakable mercy. The second issue, of course, is precisely what we find at the end of his life. When the scribes and the uh, religious authorities, the chief priests, become aware that the crowds are crying out to him as son of David, they put him to death. And Jesus still has a lot of things to teach, a lot of things to do, a lot of training of his disciples for after he's gone, and he's trying to avoid, he actually is avoiding, he doesn't simply try, a premature confrontation that will lead to his own death. And by the way, that fits very nicely with the fact that Jesus doesn't heal them, doesn't even talk to them when they're out, he's on the road, while they're crying out to him, son of David. It's almost like he's going, son of David, we're, we're going to ignore that, right? It's only in private, as it were, that, and there were other people around, but it was in, inside a house. It was in private that he heals them, not in consequence of that title. Well, if that's right there's actually no reason to assume that the formerly blind men did anything wrong by spreading the Lord's fame. As long as when they went out, they spread his fame, going, I was blind, now I see, Jesus did it. He's a great healer. He's the greatest teacher who's ever lived. You you ought to follow this Jesus. As long as they weren't proclaiming him as the son of David. Now the scene shifts with the final miracle of chapters 8 and 9, to focus on how the truth about who Jesus is brings radical division among those who encounter him. Um, Please look at verses 32 through 34 with me. As they were going away, behold, the demon-oppressed man, who was mute, was brought to him. And when the demon had been cast out, the mute man spoke, And the crowds marveled, saying, Never was anything like this seen in Israel. But the Pharisees said, He casts out demons by the prince of demons. The flood of miracles, one after another, almost all of them done in public sight. He does raise Jairus' daughter in the house. He does heal these blind men in the house right that we just saw. But people knew who did it, and the other miracles he does publicly. This this rush of miracles leaves everyone without excuse. No one could look at Jesus doing all these things and not realize that supernatural powers are are at work. But they're divided about where those supernatural powers come from. I don't think we should see the crowd's response as the crowd responding in faith. We're going to see them all drift away, or most of them drift away later on. But they're awed about him and what he's doing. They say, we've never seen anything like this in Israel. You know, Elijah did some really remarkable things. Elisha did some remarkable things. God did some remarkable things to Moses. But nothing like this. But then there's the response of the Pharisees, the official religious party, as it were. right? The people that were supposed to take God's word the most serious. They could not deny what Jesus was doing. They didn't want to. But they attributed it to Satan. Pharisees say he casts out demons by the prince of demons. And by the way, that that refrain is going to show up a number of times through the rest of the gospel. Jesus will eventually confront that issue directly. But for now, you just want to see one very important truth that applies to your own life as you're engaged in the Great Commission, as we're engaged in the Great Commission together. Seeing is not believing. I can't tell you how many times people have told me, you know, if God would just come and do a miracle, they'd believe. And you have to tell them that's totally untrue. You know, one of the astonishing things is people even see the resurrected Jesus after he has been crucified and raised from the dead. The resurrected and glorified Jesus and we're told, yet some doubted. Beloved, please realize in your own life that seeing is not believing. As Jeffrey Gibbs points out, such is the power of evil and unbelief that men can be eyewitnesses of the mighty deeds of God and Jesus, and yet conclude that the power at work comes from the devil. Now, There is an obvious application that we all need to make from this truth. And that's that prayer is a vital aspect of us sharing the gospel with our loved ones, uh, sharing our gospel with our neighbors, our coworkers, and the Great Commission in general. Beloved, you can't get people to believe in Jesus because you simply get better arguments, or, or, or you, you get the wording right, or you get it at just the right time. Your technique, your abilities are not going to bring about the conversion of anyone unless they're empowered by the work of the Holy Spirit. So let us commit ourselves to prayer, and think about your loved ones. Pray for their salvation regularly, for your co-workers, because unless God opens their eyes, they will never see. Thankfully, the son of David, who opens the eyes of the blind, is not sending us out in our own power. He is sending us out in his the Lord who says all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me sends us out in his power to proclaim the greatest news that has ever been told. We are a little more than poor migrant workers going out into the field. But the Lord of the harvest is committed to reaping a vast harvest of people that are so great from every tribe, tongue, and nation that they cannot even be numbered by human counting. How will Jesus respond to the divided response that we see in these miracles? On the one hand, there's a crowd that seems interested. Uh, You'll see in other places, like in the Gospel of John, we're told explicitly, yet Jesus did not entrust himself to them because he knew what was in man. The the crowd's excited, they're not committed. On the other hand, we have the, the Pharisees who are explicitly saying Jesus is in league with Satan. And, and that argument will grow throughout the rest of the gospel. How does Jesus, the true son of David, respond to this? Look at verse 35 with me. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. How does the son of David respond? Jesus simply goes on being Jesus. He has come into this world with his own mission. He's come into this world to proclaim the gospel, the good news of the kingdom. He has come into this world to do these astonishing miracles that pointed to who he is, what he is doing, and actually to point to the age of co- to come, which is now crashing into this present age in him. But most importantly, he has come to die for the sins of his people. And Jesus will not be deterred from his mission based on how people respond. There's a vital lesson for us to learn and to keep relearning in the fact that Jesus is going to keep on being Jesus. Whether or not we place our trust in Jesus is ultimately of great significance to us. But beloved, that will not change Jesus at all. Um, I sometimes tell people when I'm talking to them and they, they just Say, oh, you're a pastor. Well, I'm an atheist. And I'll say, well, you know, your unbelief doesn't change God at all. It doesn't make him go away. And and oddly, in America, we think that's how it works, right? If I choose to not believe, I can just change reality. But please mark this. Jesus is going to go on being Jesus no matter how we respond. What matters in our response, the difference it makes is the difference it makes in our own lives, Nothing in all at all in all of creation could hinder Jesus from faithfully fulfilling his mission. The question for us to ask this morning is both challenging and direct. Is the Jesus of this passage, the Jesus of the whole Bible, the Messiah who you worship? Or have you tried to press Jesus into a mold of your own or the broader culture's making? Uh, please don't think of this as a light switch that's either on or off. I mean, you can be entirely off, but it's almost certain that none of us is entirely on. We all need to be adjusted in this area to the way that we've accommodated the Jesus who's revealed to us in God's word to what we want him to be like. And so I offer you two straightforward diagnostic questions. As the dentist might say, this might hurt just a little bit. First, what do you think the biggest problems in your life actually are? You can think about that right now. What are the biggest problems in your life? Think about that this week. If nearly everything you consider to be a problem is something outside of you, then congratulations, you have been fully Americanized. The bad news is, this view is almost entirely wrong. Now, it is true, you do have problems outside of you, and Jesus cares about those problems. Jesus does, in fact, come to deliver his people from external enemies, and ultimately, he will deliver you from every single one of them. That is totally true. But at the heart of Christ's great work is that he has come come to save us from our sins. And so, unless you realize that the biggest problem in your life is you, you're missing the point of why Jesus came. The second diagnostic question is closely related to the first. What is it that you mostly pray for every day? Now, by all means, you ought to pray for sick people. God tells us to. Right? So, I'm not telling you to stop praying for sick people. Um, you ought to pray for people who have lost their jobs that God would provide them meaningful work. And that might be you. Pray for yourself. Right? God cares about every detail of your life. There is nothing too small in your life to bring before God in prayer. And yet, if you find that nearly all your prayers are about health and money and opportunities that are external to you, you haven't really aligned your prayers with Christ's mission for your life. Consider praying more for your own sanctification, the sanctification of your children, right? Pray that God's will would be done in this world. Now, if you want to be bold, here's a a really useful exercise. It's going to take you some work, but it's a really useful exercise. Go back and reread the Sermon on the Mount. That's Matthew 5 through 7. Don't read it fast. Don't try to do the whole thing in one sitting. Read small bits of it. See what Jesus' priorities are for our lives and pray about that. Right? Because you know if you're praying about what Jesus is telling you, You're praying in accordance with God's will. Please pray those prayers not only for yourself, but for your brothers and sisters in this church. These diagnostic questions are not isolated nuggets of spiritual wisdom, nor, God forbid, are they components of a spiritual self-help plan. That's not what I'm offering you this morning. That's not what Jesus offers us in the gospel The goal was simply for us to align our lives with the person and the work of Jesus Christ as he has revealed himself to us in his word. This Jesus, he is the merciful son of David who came to save his people from their sins. This Jesus, although he is by very nature God, humbled himself, taking to himself a true human nature to live the life that you and I should have lived and to die the death that you and I should have died. The question is really simple. Is this the son of David that you trust in and that you worship? Because of the increase of his government and of peace, there shall be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts shall accomplish this. Amen.